I am Vero, and this is Modern Immigrant. Welcome, everybody, to a new episode of Modern Immigrant. As always, I'm really happy and excited to have you here, ready to listen to another amazing immigration story. Before we start and introduce my guests of this week, I want to remind you to follow us on Insta, subscribe, like, comment, and share this episode if you found value. I had the amazing opportunity to interview Nance. Nance is a Ugandan Liberian first generation trans non-binary American immigrant. And they're also an amazing artist, author, photographer, storyteller, and cultural organizer. This interview is truly fascinating. I had the opportunity to ask Nance really difficult questions about their identity, about their reality, about showing up with all of their identities of that first generation um, experience in the U.S. today. We also talk about their amazing book, which I actually have right here, and I have been enjoying it so much, but I don't want to tell you anything else because I want you to be able to discover this amazing interview and be able to get into this journey because it is an amazing, amazing conversation. Thank you so much one more time for being here. Thank you for supporting Morning Immigrant. Remember that we receive donations if you want to support the production of this podcast. And we love every time we are able to continue to work towards this project. Enjoy the conversation. Thank you. Welcome, everybody, to a new episode of an Immigrant. I'm really excited, as always, um, to have a new guest and to be able to explore another journey. So, Nans, welcome to Modern Immigrant. Thank you for having me. Yeah, this is really exciting. And, uh, Nans, what are your uh, pronouns? So, we also know that to start. Sure. sure. Yeah, so our pronouns are he, him, they, them. Awesome. And I love when I start these interviews asking what I feel like it can be a really general question, but I also want to hear from you. Um, tell us about your immigration journey, like background, family, um, all of those places that we're all kind of connected and from. <laughs> sure. So I love that you actually asked what my name was because um, I... I particularly see um, the name as something that's very powerful and that really says something about a person before you you get to know them and their kind of inner layers, the things they want to reveal about themselves. So um, my first name, Nance, that I call myself, Nancy, was given to me by my mother, um, who's Liberian. Um, and um, my father um, is Ugandan. My, la- my last name is Musungusi. Um, and in his, in his language in Angole, um, that means fearless conqueror. Um, and I like to kind of bring that spirit to all of my work. Um, and then my middle name, Mbabazi, um, is Ugandan as well. And is technically supposed to be my Ugandan name. Someone, that's how I would be referred to if I were to go visit family. Um, they would call me Mbabazi, not, not Nancy. They could call me Nancy and I do like, tell them to call me call me by the name that I I prefer to be be called by but Mbabazi was given to me to honor that kind of lineage to honor the kind of the power of naming yeah um so sorry starting with that so I I am first generation black um Ugandan Liberian American um I am trans masculine and non-binary um queer I'm an abolitionist um I'm an organizer um 
but I'm a photographer. I'm a visual artist and a visual storyteller. And I, I recently published this book, um, the letter for me known as Q um, in 2021. Um, and actually the cover, I, I, the cover was inspired by um, this incredible piece by Carrie Mae Weems, um, who's a, a wonderful, incredible black woman, visual artist, uh, photographer, image maker, storyteller, um, keeper of stories, um, challenger of convention, um, kind of authoring of her existence into the world with her self-portraiture and how she wants to posture herself. Um, this piece that she had done, it was, it was this kind of like very abstract piece. She had taken these portraits of black children in the South and cropped them in boxes and overlaid color over their images to kind of give moods, you know, this very dark blue indigo mood over this very kind of, she kind of had a little attitude, a little black girl to attitude, but like maybe the, maybe that blue is indicating that that plate, that, 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 that attitude is actually coming from a place of deep sadness or the want or the need to, um, to feel and be seen fully. Um, the red of like a smiling, you know, like young boy, it's like, and, 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 and there's so many ways that that can be interpreted. It's mm-hmm. all based on who's looking and who's seeing. And I like really base a lot of my practice on those theories of like, how am I challenging people and how they're seeing um, and how they're registering things um, and how they're being presented and, and making meaning against their worldview, because um, not everything is, is made for you to understand, you know, automatically. Um yeah. So, <laughs> and everyone's gonna give that interpretation, which I think it's so important. I I truly appreciate how you started the interview by giving us the background of your names and the meaning, and also talking about your family because I think something that sometimes as immigrants and and I want to ask you for about your first generation immigrant identity because I think as we grow as first generation or second or immigrants, we transform right over the process. And sometimes we change to the, to what our family knows about us or who we were. Mm -hmm. How has that been for you to continue to like challenge yourself, grow, transform, but still kind of stay true to your roots and your family and that approval. I think a lot of immigrants sometimes struggle with that guilt of like, okay, uh, I'm not that person anymore, but I want to yeah. love where I come from. Yeah. I don't know. It's complex, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. I will. Yeah. That inner contradiction of like wanting to be over, like just be expansive and all the things that you think are possible, but still living within the confines of the mm-hmm. forms and, and, and like behaviors that people accept you for, you know, and living in the gray area of that is where growth is. And like, for me, you know, I started this project four years ago and I identified as a queer black woman. And today I am evolving and constantly changing and refining how I identified who I am. Um, and, you know, a part of that is, is being in community with more trans and queer immigrant folks who share my identity, but also share my values and my politics and understanding, you know, kind of the power of existence um, in a world that does not want to see you or understand you. Yeah. And don't, don't want to see you being yourself and free yeah. and happy. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Um, I think something that is really interesting when I was reading the 
letter formerly known as Q and all of those voices from people that have a first generation story or an immigrant story and a queer identity. Something that I, I saw as a, as a pattern and as a theme in the stories was community and the importance of community. And I think that's something beautiful that you're bringing together, right? Like the importance of finding your community. And I would love for you to speak on that. Like what have been that community that you have built and the importance of community when you're not finding like a space for yourself, like when feeling an outsider, which I, I read a lot in, in the book. Yeah. Um, feeling like an outlier. That was like in the first book too. Um, just kind of this theme of um, finding and finding and defining, you know, belonging. What does that mean? Um, because I think community as, as like kind of a social structure, like a, a way to hold all kinds of identities and desires and, and, and wants and needs, um, you know, like requires a lot of different kinds of, of perspectives and understandings yeah. of what home means, um, not just a house and uh, a car to get around and a job to pay for everything. Um, and people to socialize in between, you know, like, and to, and to reaffirm your status in society, like being first generation um, and being raised by two immigrant, African immigrant parents who have particular kinds of points of view and class mm -hmm. status. They, they were privileged. You know, my parents went to Ivy League institutions and got graduate education. Um, they had professions in emerging and very um, lucrative industries that were growing in America. The, my dad worked in finance and technology. My mother was a social entrepreneur and was a travel booking agent and, you know, like ran her own little business, but like served a particular kind of immigrant who wanted to travel and go back home. Hmm. Um, and their understanding of the world and how it was configured and how they, how they saw themselves inside of it. Um, you know, living in the kind of like inner and outer contradictions of who you are and like how people accept you and how you move. You know, I, I, I am constantly confronting all of those things inside and out when I'm trying to find that definition of home and community. And it's, and it's definitely expressed very more complexly by the subjects because of who they are. And again, um, the kind of language that's available to us to, to describe people and who they are and where they come from, mm -hmm. you know, like I wouldn't consider I in the traditional sense, I wouldn't be considered an immigrant because I was born on this soil, but I live in Minneapolis and I've made this my home, you know, after, cause I am a transplant. I'm a transplant from the East coast, um, from New Jersey. Um, and, and I made home here because, um, I, I could not find community after college. College right. was this kind of microcosm that created this very superior like reality of like connection and, and, you know, um, upward mobility, you know, every year you'll graduate and you'll find new opportunities mm -hmm. and, and spend more, less and less time on campus and exploring the world around you. But that world around you in the college, a college city is really refined to like the yuppie culture mm -hmm. is kind of like preparing mm -hmm. yourself to work in a capitalist workforce. Like mm -hmm. that's not really showing people what the world is like. It's showing the showing people how you should expect the world to be and how you should show up in it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I've lived a life where I've never been presented that as a, as a truth as just as a point of view, as a perspective. Um, and, you know, like my parents being my parents, like really emphasize that, as I move through the world with this kind of privilege and like access to the world um, and never really, never forgetting who I am. 
and like where I come from. That was a lot. I don't know if I No, that is beautiful. I loved it. And I was like taking notes of a few things because <laughs> I think it's interesting how you it is interesting how I have been experiencing people's trying to understand if they fit into the immigrant category or not, especially as they're in this space and we're talking about immigration. Mm-hmm. And I it's interesting to also see like I talk sometimes on my social media about like, okay, what's a first generation immigrant or what do you understand about it? And I love finding so many different definitions, right? Like I love that there's no right or wrong answer to this because, and you're saying that like that, even that experience of like growing up with immigrant parents, but then moving from an area in the country to another one and finding a different community. Like, aren't we like in a way migrating too when Mm -hmm. we're doing that and like, I don't know. I just like to like, ex- I, I want people to be able to expand that concept. And, and if you feel like you're, if you feel comfortable with identifying as an immigrant, then you are an immigrant. Like you don't need right. For the ones listening, like they don't ne- mm-hmm. necessarily need that confirmation of like, where were you born? Um, mm-hmm. And, and it's beautiful to see that you have found that community in that home in a way away from home. <laughs> I think I'm trying. I think also, yeah. and even, even speaking to you talking about kind of this reclamation of identity, like I am, a, you know, being an immigrant is something that um, at one point, you know, some points in our lives where it was embarrassing or even dangerous to say, mm-hmm. you know, um, there, there is actually a privilege to be able to say that you're an immigrant here um, because based on who you are, those, that kind of identity can be stripped away from you. Um, if you don't yeah. comply with the state and like how the state wants to operate, you know, or, mm-hmm. um, or, or your identity or your existence is, is, is contradicting its existence. And yeah, you know. I even remember like years ago when I was a recent arrived to the U S I remember how much I will always follow the, yeah, I'm from Venezuela and I'm an immigrant and I, I'm here with this visa, right? Like I felt the need to protect myself and justify and overshare my legal status to find that approval of like people being like, oh, okay, okay, like you're good, mm-hmm. right? And like over the years, the more I have been like working around this, this identity myself and exploring other immigration stories, I've been finding like, wow, how how difficult it is that we're trying to prove that we're good right mm-hmm. um because it's dangerous to not fit into those um expectations yeah so yeah it's difficult but i love to have the opportunity to like at least open the spaces for people to hear these conversations and and feel like okay someone maybe on the other side is like okay i'm i'm also feeling that way and and it's okay to struggle and transform and change and and learn over time um mm-hmm. One thing that I would like to ask you is what challenges, like if you can talk from your experience um, with the identities that you describe or you define in your book as first generation, non-binary, trans, Black, I would say, living in the U.S. Tell us about those challenges that you have to constantly navigate um, so people can understand better that experience. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, even you just saying like, what does it be? What does it mean to be black in America? I'm like, challenges in itself, um, living in an anti-black world, um, very difficult, very challenging. 
Um, you know, like that's, I mean, it's a big question of like, I know how, how do I live in a world um, that was kind of not designed for me to live peacefully and like accept it. Um, really expected for me to assimilate and to like shrink and fit my identities into these kind of smaller borders um, that I am allowed to occupy and like exist within as long as I follow rules and laws and order. Um, and as long, and then as long as I don't like kind of deviate from those things, because mm-hmm. um, what happens is like my identity becomes becomes something that's celebrated to something that's criminalized and like constantly finding myself kind of at kind of um, rubbing up against these borders that are trying to limit my existence or my humanity. You know, like, I mean, being black and being immigrant is a very interesting experience in that there's very limited spaces that will see me fully. You know, um, I'm constantly having to negotiate and compromise who I am um, to, to live. Um, but I, I don't believe that. I think that's, that's just a theoretical framework of understanding mm-hmm. marginalization. Um, I don't buy into the definition. I think more or less, I think, I think, um, I think just deconstructing a lot of the limitations and barriers that are placed upon people's people like me with my identities mm-hmm. um, is you know, it's, it's a, it's a lot more complex than like believing in yourself and having confidence in yourself. Oh, like yes. knowing. Cause that's what people would tell you, right? Like trust yourself. Mm, you got this. I don't, I mean, I'm too critical for people to tell me something that basic to me when I'm okay. confronting, okay, confronting good. systems of capitalism and imperialism and patriarchy, yeah. or even coming to grips with like how my black masculinity is like mm-hmm. rendered, you know, like my blackness is, is steeped in, in queerness and, in feminism and it's militant um you know but the thing is like i can't rebrand it and make it cute or brave or throw flowers in my hair and and then make email songs about how tender my parts of my soul are you know like there are things that i can't i can't become a chameleon i can't use my identity to disappear i can be ignored and i can be dis- disenfranchised but i can't choose how people see me and treat me you know Um, and, and that's a, that, that's like a challenge in navigating itself. Like, and you talk about that in the introduction of the book, you say that depending on how you present yourself, you receive different treatments out in the world. Like if your hair is down, if your hair is up in a bond, like, would you like to talk mm-hmm. a little bit about that? And, and people should read it in the book and get it. But I just found that to go perfectly with what you're saying, because how you represent yourself will have different responses. Yeah. Yeah. I think like, hmm, man, there was, I just recently read um, James Baldwin's um, Nobody Knows My Name. Mm. It's an incredible book of essays that he wrote when he self-exiled himself to Paris for 10 years and then came back and visited the South for the first time in his life and then went back to Harlem where he was born and kind of had this retrospective understanding of how the world was changing um, after, you know, after World War II, during Vietnam, like how the world was really changing around him and within him. And so just kind of going back to like, yeah, like just small, like very, very small parts of me can be, can be like rendered very differently based on who's in front of me and like how much they know about me. Like, 
sometimes when I have my hair down, I, I look more feminine and like people will then feel more calm and a lot less anxious about how I'm going to respond or move or, you know, like even posture toward them if they're more mask or femme. When I put my hair up and like, I got a bandana on, you know, it's, or, you know, like it could be other, it could be the other way. People think I'm like kind of cool and punky and like, maybe colorblind and like chill and like real like laid back and just like doesn't care about anything um but I'm like actually there's a lot more militant than you think yeah um yeah like just kind of how people like um they they kind of just do think like they will render something so that it can either be more threat be less threatening Mm -hmm. and they feel more safe around it and like kind of it's kind of the reduction, like just even the scenario building, just like it's the reduction reduction of someone's humanity so that you can feel bigger or feel more comfortable in space. And like when I say you, I'm not meaning you, obviously, this is the universe of you, but I'm talking to whiteness, mm-hmm. people who benefit from whiteness and posture toward whiteness so they can live freely and, and fully in the world. Um, kind of kind of addressing um that audience when I'm talking about how I am being exoticized or um, or even what is it infantilized because it's more of like, wow, you're trans. So like, you don't have a full, de- you know, full developed understanding of who you are. So you're like childlike and you're like, you dress like your teenager, but it's like, also like, I haven't been able to live in this body this way for that. You know, like I've only known myself for this long. So this is how I'm appearing to myself. Maybe 20 years down the line, I might wear something different or look like an old queer, you know, whatever. Um, and unfortunately, and it's sad. It's like, there are not a lot of examples of what that looks like. What is an el- what is an older trans queer person look like as they age into themselves? You know, mm-hmm. I don't, there are, we've lost generations after generations of queer and trans people to quite frankly, like crises that did not have to be crises. Mm-hmm. And they, and, and, and we're, mostly driven by government inaction um and indifference mm-hmm. such during the, the aids epidemic um yeah, yeah. Um, missionary trips to uganda and other sub-saharan african 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 countries who were bringing evangelists and evangelists um to you know incite you know like extremist christian christians and like hurt hurt and harm and marginalized queer and trans people in their countries and and limiting their ways of building community and freedom for themselves mm. um and 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 seeing how those practices transcend in, in other ways and how how states and and government like to pick and choose who they want to save who they want to be healthy and want to be seen mm. um and represented um and cared for um as kind of necropolitics of like picking who chooses to live and who chooses to die um, I mean, that's a, I, I think I'm kind of delving from the original question, <laughs> but um, just kind of musing on, you know, there are very little examples of how I can be very like solid and very full in my existence without mm-hmm. having to justify yes. constantly, you know, what I need. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for that. And thank you for giving us more than what, what I asked. Um, I, love the there's a core I think idea as well and you asked this question too in your book to some of the um guests or the 
amazing people that uh, appear in your book that is imagining a world with no borders this borderless word world that I really would like for listeners to imagine and I would really like for you to speak on because I know you you're not only referring referring to the immigration borders which you know definitely I would like to imagine that world but tell us what would that world look like to you if like it will be a dream and it will be a world where I hopefully we get to experience yeah um so yeah when we're talking about borders we're not mm -hmm. talking about physical territories yeah. or you know you pay a toll you can go to from New Jersey <laughs> to New York for however many how much it costs now it's probably crazy now um <laughs> But it's really, I mean, it, but it, it does serve, it does kind of, it does muse as a metaphor as like an access point to freedom. Um, and when we're talking about our identities, those access points to freedom um, can look very differently based on who you are and, and your proximity to um, whiteness. Because that is, that is unfortunately in the, un, living under the conditions we are living in now, that is the access point to freedom, mm -hmm. full freedom. Um, but it doesn't have to be that way, um, you know, and, and to, for borders to, to be enforced, there must be police um, and the people who are safeguarding its existence and its legitimacy. Um, so a world without borders and those who, of, and mm -hmm. those who benefit and enforce them would look very, very different. Um, I would probably save a lot of money. If not, I would not need currency to have a home. Mm. Um, you know, suddenly like rent is, you know, is not needed because, uh, you know, like housing is a human right and it's a universal, it's a universal right for people, um, to be able to fully contribute and fully show up and participate in civil society as they are and where they are on the, on the spectrum of able of their ability as well. Because mm -hmm, mm -hmm. there are people in this world that cannot work because they can't, they physically cannot. Um, and that's not, that should not limit people's ability to live and have a home and a place to stay and be safe. Um, I feel like every other weekend would just be like a block party. We'd maybe work three, three days a week. Yes. It'd be like Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and it'd be like three hours. And it's just like to check in with people to see if like, is everything okay? Cool. Um, um, childcare would be more, um, be more, you would be more common and more accessible than a gas station. You'd see more, you'd see more schools and a lot more places for people to learn, um, like really learn and engage. Like learning would also look different. I feel like, you know how like California has schools that are just kind of like out, like kind of open. I love that. There's some here in Washington too, like in the woods. Yeah. So like, it would be cool for like schools to be, you know, it'd be enclosed in the winter, but they would have to, then they would switch to like a school that's more open and like, like less walls and borders, like when it's warmer. I just want, I would envision the world where people have less boundaries to be in the world mm -hmm. and to live in it and, and exercise their freedoms in it. Is there, is there anything that you feel like we could do from or maybe an example of what are you doing to like work towards that idea and that word and a world. And I know this is really difficult because it's like, we 
maybe, I don't know, sometimes I struggle with people telling me like, well, we can't just one person change a system, right? Me doing something today is not going to change this structural thing that's an issue. But I do believe that we can do things from our positions to get closer to that world. So what are you, what do you think you're doing or what steps you're taking that maybe can give some information to those listening? Sure. Um, so everyone that's listening, I am a, I'm going toward the end of my early career stage. So I'm an emerging um, visual multidisciplinary artist, storyteller, researcher, and author. Um, and as someone that makes a living off of freelance client work, grant funding, um, and so on and so forth. A lot of like temporary, not very sustainable ways of supporting and thriving in the world. Um, I am currently through a fellowship um, through an incredible organization called Headwaters Foundation. Um, I'm doing a doing this thing called the Black Fellow Black Seed Fellowship, um, where I am building a, a cooperative association, which would serve as kind of this cooperative ecosystem um, for Black and marginalized um, artists and cultural workers in the Twin Cities, um, coming from various stages of the careers. Um, and originally coming from um, the, the African, the Caribbean, Asian, and um, Latinx diaspora um, to better align our work and our practice, um, as well as to think of more, more creative and, and way more stellar ways to, to support and care for one another. Because um, that's kind of the only way that communities grow and they thrive is if if everybody is involved um, and it's not a singular kind of crusade where someone's just kind of eating up all these resources and just kind of spinning it back out, you know, um, this kind of this cult, this like heightened cooperation with people in my community and how we work and how we live and how we rest and how we dream, um, building infrastructure in ways that really support and sustain people's work and also build relationships out of the workplace. Cause that's an identity that artists just do not have. And like you as a producer, like, when people ask you who you are, your instinct is to say, this is who I am and justify it. A hundred percent. Yeah. You know, and prove your worth and justify it over and over. And you see it in your technical writing and your grant applications and, and how you posture toward prospective clients. Always proving, that. proving that I, I'm enough. And, and, and what I'm trying to do is reduce the kind of the essence and element of white supremacy in that work is like white supremacy's role is to distract you and to keep you justifying as to why you are fighting against things that are harmful or your right to fight against. Um, I dream of a world where artists have a lot more time and space and freedom to just think, um, experiment and fail because it's not expensive to fail and failure stops becoming a, a kind of a menace in our, in our culture something that should not ever be experienced or happen in our lives, but that's the thing that reinforces what works best. And like having other people around you to affirm you, um, but even create tension so that you can dig deeper into your understanding mm. is what I'm craving. And I see my peers and, and this is also like a group that I'm hoping that bridges generations of artists together that is fostering a kind of culture of community that has not existed in our world because of this lack of infrastructure mm. that's holding all kinds of people who, who support and provide and serve communities um, and, and finding, finding really 
balance ways to do it. So, you know, you're not charging people so much or you're not earning enough or you're relying on grants or relying on, you know, these kind of external streams of income that are not sustainable. So trying to really, trying to like build, build this really stellar world. Um, and, and it's called Nectar. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm, will be, that's how I'm seeing a world without borders for people mm-hmm. who are, are, are kind of, yeah, that are, are, are helping build the world and help people imagine the world differently yeah. um, as we go through social change in these times. Thank you. And there's, yeah, it's beautiful to hear you saying that and to hear that, yeah, we can do this by ourselves. And I think we have been pushed to do it by ourselves. And it's time to just, you know, say, hey, let's come together. Let's ask for help. Mm-hmm. We're tired. We need support. And take a deep breath, right? Like that's, thank you. Um, I already probably gave a, an introduction of like the book at the beginning of this episode, but I would love for you to tell us why the letter formerly known as Q, why the name and what can people find in the book? Um, so the letter formerly known as Q was a name that I came up with, um, with a couple of friends. I had first, I like new friends I'd made here when I first moved here. Um, in 2014, um, and I had just done my first art show, and and someone had asked me like, "What's next?" Oh, and I was like, question. "Yeah, I was like, ah, uh, 23 year old man, I don't really know. Like, I am just like, I'm just ready to experience the world. Like, I was, I was, I had just stopped um, working in music photography, live music photography at that time. So I was thinking deeper about what my practice was outside of a photo pit or, you know, a magazine or, you know, a website, you know, how can I bring people together? And, and, and I really was, I was really at a, at a crossroads where I was like, I want to find my people and I don't know where they are. I don't know how to find them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was still trying to refine who I was and my identity, you know, am I cis? Am I queer? Am I non-binary? Am I trans? Am I this, all of this stuff? And just even the, the acronym, LGBTQ mm-hmm. plus just felt very, it just wasn't giving. It's not something that really represents this, this kind of spectacularness of queer and trans and gender expansive people. I was like, there just needs to be something like, like, you know, that kind of idea of like the post, like mm-hmm. postmodern or post whatever, um, you know, what does this post LGBTQ movement look like? Because I'm not trying to get married. I'm not trying to share assets with my partner that's not my goal yo I'm not trying to like work at businesses that accept my identity I'm like I feel like there's a new um kind of like spirit to our our like social movement around defining freedom and like who we are and also like how queer and trans voices have not really have not been centered in those fights um and our issues have not been centered in those fights so the letter formerly known as Q was just like a very poetic name. I, I love Lo- Yes. <laughs> love a good name, caption, um, title. Um, it gives it gives like life to a work so it can live beyond yourself because people can make meaning and have something to really reference, you know, creating culture, I guess. Like this Q word, you know, like it used to be something, you know, queerness. It used to be something that people wouldn't utter. It would be something that was taboo it was something that 
you it was um it was derogatory to say that someone was queer. It was a word to say you're weird or like just not normal. Um, and just normal as a, as a term, just wild. But the letter forming known as Q um, actually came into existence. Yeah. Summer 2014. Um, I want to find my people. I was talking with a friend who, a friend that I collaborated with many times um, on art projects, art installations, art um, uh, collaborations. And, I was like, I want to interview a bunch of um, queer African folks, you know, and talk and ask them about like their identities and like how they're challenging what it means to be, you know, both black, African and immigrant in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, he was like, how are you going to find other, are there any <laughs> other queer Africans? And I was like, what? I can't be, I'm not an anomaly. Right. You know, I'm not a deviation, you know, I am not the exception. Um, and just be kind of being young and, and, and hardheaded. I was like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to find them. I'm yes. going to find my people. Mm. And, you know, I kind of relentlessly did find my chosen family. Um, and, and most of them were in social movement, black liberation movement um, spaces and were fighting for the same things that I was fighting for. Um, and I was very inspired by the kinds of ideologies and like practices that people were using to like create those definitions for themselves mm-hmm. and their people. And I, again, I felt there was kind of this like missing radicalness, this militancy in this LGBTQ mm-hmm. movement. Like, what mm-hmm. are we fighting for? Right. <laughs> like, I don't want to stand in, I don't want to be in the frame of the picture, you know, like basically yeah. it's like, you got a, you got a group photo and they're like, all right, you can sit on the edge. And just, we won't actually have a flash on your face. You'll just, you know, it's like. When they can like cut you. (laughs) They can crap you whenever they want to, right? Mm. Um, I was like, I don't want, I want like an opportunity to kind of refresh the frame. Who all is here? You know, what, what are we missing? What are we not talking about? And I, I, I felt like I was taking things that, yeah, the LGBTQ movement really wasn't really speaking enough about and then in the in the era of like a time where those issues could not be ignored around immigration mm-hmm. and borders and and um how people are making home and how people are like not making it possible to make home you know mm-hmm. like the the um trump you know like the whole thing at the borders like that mm-hmm. was a thing that really jump started and 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 empowering ICE and and fully financing and funding ICE, like yeah. that was a thing I couldn't ignore and separate from my my understanding and worldview of the world, um, especially as a queer person who's constantly trans person is constantly constantly trying to understand where I fit in. Right. Um, yeah. Yes, and it's all of those identities together. I think that's something I really appreciate about your book is that. You know, I'm tired to see people thinking that immigrants are this one thing and queer people are this other thing and yeah. a person of color, a black person is this other thing. And it's like, mm-hmm. wait a second, like there's this whole intersectionality. We are so many things together mm-hmm. and that can add complexity and that can add sometimes strength or ch- different challenges. So just reading the diversity of each of the stories really touches me and helps me imagine a world that's way way you know 
bigger and more amazing than what I ever could imagine. So I think that's where we need to come together and read and listen and open our mind to, to those experiences. Um, and, and I saw that you did it in Minnesota. I just want to make mm-hmm. sure that we talk about it because that's where you mentioned that you build your community, right? Like Correct, yeah. when you like migrated from <laughs> one, one place to another. Yeah. And <laughs> um, yeah, I think that's beautiful that you lifted up that, that sense in that sense, that part of the community there. Yeah. It's, it's actually interesting that I had applied for many grants um, to fund this project so I could take time off from client work and to just focus on it. Um, I was the sole producer, really, of the first book. I did the photos. I recorded the interviews. I transcribed it to the graphic design, uh, layout, paid for the printing, you know, like distributed, marketed, all the wow. things. This time, um, I was in partnership with this, this incredible Black um, immigrant-owned publishing house called Wise Inc., who's run by this um, first-generation Jamaican woman, um, and took a really took a big chance on me because I wouldn't, I would, this book would not be possible without someone who understands the importance of those intersections and how right. they, yes, they give us power, but they all do, they do reduce that ac- that access yeah. point for us to be free in the world, seen in the world. Hundred um, percent. Yeah. I'll just add that. Mm-hmm. Um, Um, yeah, like the many identities that are in the book, you know, how they show up and how people understand them as they come across them. I want them to understand that for these people to live, to be here and to provide their voices, there have been many generations that came before them that had to survive for them to say these things. And all of the systems and 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 objects and things that 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 prevent people or 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 stop people earlier in their lives to share these things um i want i want to like emphasize how how important this kind of legacy building is essential to our communities because there is no promise that they will be here to share these things in their later life and that's, that's like painful for me to say, but it's something that must be reckoned with and that the movement that I am in is here to dismantle all systems of oppression and exploitation against people who are vulnerable and do not have the kinds of powers that states and borders and people who benefit and enforce them do. And, you know, like this, this is the kind of work that I wish I had when I was 16 or 17 years old, where I didn't know if what I would be like in adulthood, if I would even survive to see it. Um, And, and, and like all of these intersections as, as they show up and are kind of revealing these kinds of oohs and ah moments in yourselves, like pay attention to that because that's where you're finding those borders and you're breaking them down and you're going, this isn't a challenge this actually isn't a, a barrier. It's just a challenge for me um, to be really rooted in myself and, 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 and like be relentless in it. Um, Thank you for telling us that as we approach the book, because I, yeah, hopefully we can go beyond just reading it. Right. And we can actually learn something about ourselves and our society. 
Well, where can we find the book <laughs> before we yes. say bye? Where can we yeah. buy it? Um, so um, in addition to this wonderful book that I produced um, in collaboration with incredible people, I also collaborate with incredible people to build a digital archive and a kind of a digital extension and online extension of the book. Um, it's called lfkaq.net. Um, you can go on there and it hosts all of the interviews in its, in its multimedia form. Um, you have your you have the images and you have text transcription. Then you also have audio recorded conversation. So you can listen to the kind of nuanced and in uninterrupted conversation um, and dialogue that we're having. Um, and yeah, we have some other great things. Yeah. You can buy the book on there and then you can buy, then you can um, um, see and, and add resources that, um, that you find would be helpful to improve the lives and livelihoods of queer and trans and immigrant folks um, in Minnesota and beyond. Um, there's a resource page that has a bunch of organizations that do that work. Um, and um, there's also a tab where you can um, request a, a pop-up installation um, or community dialogue and dinner in your own community. I'm trying to like go through the whole website it's okay. right now. It's yeah, not no working. So yeah, anyway, there's a whole lot of other incredible things on that website. Um, you can contact me through there. There's a chat forum on there as well. So you can um, continue conversations and dialogue about the book with other people. Um, it's free to sign up. I won't use or sell your data or information. Um, it's really just this um, this free space for folks to, to, to gather and, and connect outside of this, you know, uh, outside of social media that really um, limits and censors and um, kind of monopolizes spaces that you want to cultivate for your community to gather and have conversations with. So um, please feel free to use that message board um, to continue those conversations about the book and to expand, expand on those themes. Thank you. Thank you for providing all of that information and for providing like a whole experience through your website where people can find other resources. I will make sure I add the link down below in this episode description so people can go and check it out. I'm really grateful that you had the opportunity to come to Modern Immigrant to share your part of your story and about your book. And I'm really glad that we connected. So thank you so much, Nance. Thank you so much, Vero. You were a gem. Thank you for building this platform for people like us. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much.